0: In 2014, uh, we legally challenged a fossil fuel subsidy scheme in the European Court and the scheme was designed in a completely anti-competitive way to favour fossil fuel. In 2018, we won our case. These cases take a long time in the European Court, so we stopped the £5.6 billion fossil fuel subsidy scheme. In 2014, uh, we legally challenged a fossil fuel subsidy scheme in the European Court And the scheme was designed in a completely anti-competitive way to favour fossil fuel. In 2018, we won our case. These cases take a long time in the European Court. So we stopped the £5.6 billion fossil fuel subsidy scheme. The UK government and the European Commission colluded to unlawfully reintroduce the scheme in a manner that bankrupted our company because we lost the High Court legal challenge. If it's possible to win a legal case and still have governments and pan-national governments unlawfully reintroduce fossil fuel subsidy schemes, then clearly changing regulation is not going to happen fast enough. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015
1: was the hottest year since climate records began. The show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change
0: is now affecting every country on every continent.
1: It's the rate that's of great concern. And oh, what do you mean so. that rate down to Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. I'm Mark Spencer, publisher of the Climactic Collective Podcast Network, and this is an episode of Climactic Candid, honest talks with climate-engaged people from across society. My guest for this episode is entrepreneur Sarah Bell. You'll shortly hear Sarah tell her own story. But briefly, Sarah was CEO of Tempest Energy, an energy technology company that had a presence in the UK and here in Australia. The company was shifting when power was used to times of the day when renewable energy was being supplied, reducing the use of fossil fuels and emissions in the grid. The company fought and won a lawsuit in the UK that found the plans for the energy market were biased for fossil fuel sources and companies. Yet, as you'll hear, the UK government and incumbents found a way to strike back. Sarah is now throwing her energy into Amplify by Ample, a new media publication. It may seem like the energy industry and demand response and the media and content game are worlds apart, but as you'll hear, they share at heart the concept of choice and the power we use and information we consume and how it can reshape society. Sarah is refreshingly clear-eyed about the urgency of 2030 deadlines for major social changes and doesn't hold back. Language warning, some choice words are used to refer to those denying or delaying on this. You'll find yourself encouraged and engaged by this talk. Apologies that we couldn't get a better equality for the recording. The flaws in the Australian National Broadband Network were really showing on the day we recorded. But here we are, with Sarah Bell, founder of Amplify by Ample, find links to the site and some articles on her David and Goliath fight with the UK government and World's Fossil Fuels Utilities in the show notes. How did you get to where you are today?
0: Uh, A fairly windy path, I must say. Uh, It's a little bit involved, but I'll uh, I'll kind of rattle through it a bit. Uh, So I grew up in Sweden. Um, It's hard to hear that. My English accent's very English. Uh, I moved to England when I was 11, and I think uh, the sharp cultural contrasts um, really hit me. I couldn't speak English at the time, but obviously had to learn quite quickly. But on the environmental side, uh, the the contrast was incredibly sharp and seen very much through... uh, a child's eyes. The environment in Sweden very much went hand in hand with business, it wouldn't have made business sense to destroy the environment even back then in Sweden, so there was not this kind of conflict between business and the environment there, as I experienced again through the eyes of a child. um, That led to um, a kind of a permanent interest in, in the environment. But initially when I started my career I worked in financial markets uh, uh, looking at uh, price risk in financial markets which might seem like a very odd uh, path for someone involved in, uh, in the environmental movement but I think in, when I was younger I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. Ultimately I ended up going back to university and doing a Masters in uh, Environmental Management at Macquarie University here in Sydney Um, And a lot of that was about trying to pull my previous career in building risk systems into what I wanted to have as my future career in the environment. Uh, And it wasn't a straightforward path. First of all, I I got involved in uh, carbon and pricing carbon and how we might build carbon markets. And in the 90s, there was a lot of um, hope and enthusiasm uh, around that, Uh, but unfortunately, that didn't really take off. I really learnt uh, how difficult building political structures actually is. Um, many of those markets uh, they grandfathered the initial credits to polluting industries, in other words we, they gave those uh, credits for free, which meant of course there isn't a market. The whole purpose of the trying to create a carbon market has to be that the, the price of carbon costs more than actually changing what you're doing so that you reduce your emissions. Since that didn't seem to be an immediate solution to the problem, uh, I got more and more interested in renewables, about you know, moving to clean energy, and that developed an interest in smart grids since that was needed to manage renewables, and then from there to uh, demand flexibility. Uh, and that's kind of still where I this kind of environment where I'm still um, involved in and interested in, but that was kind of the, the path to get there.
1: You're right. It's not a linear story at all, but I think that's true of most people's stories, isn't it? There's loopbacks and zigzags in it, and I, I just want to go back quickly to you being a, a young girl, and you're 11, and you're moving from Sweden to the UK, and, like, was the difference there really that, that stark at that time, or is it kind of looking back on it that you realized that, wow, there's a lot of mindset in this society is quite different when it comes to nature or was it quite kind of visible like i'm relating it to my experience of going to china to be an english teacher for a couple of years in my early 20s and the differences were stark as anything it was like you know literally traveling to a different planet and how the environment was so degraded english people might be surprised <laughs> if uh, if it was quite stark to you even at 11 The
0: attitude. I'll I'll tell you a a personal story. So, aged 11, I didn't really settle uh, very well. And after about um, six to 12 months there, I ran away from home. As a result of growing up in Sweden, you're kind of used to being quite independent. You spend quite a lot of time in nature and it's not in any way a scary thing. So I was out long enough to spark a police hunt. I finally came home. I had spent most of that time in the forest a nearby kind of local wood sort of thing. You
1: hadn't and, gone
0: to the mall? No, <laughs> exactly. And I was interviewed by the police for over an hour because they refused to believe that it was possible that I would find a forest or woodland area a place of safety because no English child would behave like that. So that's just an example of uh, the stark difference in attitude.
1: Oh, that's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that with me. That's... It's- it's very visceral um, how you related to nature and that has carried through in a lot of different aspects of your career in a lot of different ways since what is it that today kind of in 2020 that gets you out of bed at the moment to to keep doing what you're doing
0: so solving climate change uh, is the biggest challenge we have you cannot have any let up on that fight you need to hopefully, pragmatically, and optimistically move forward every single day. That is what gets me out of bed. I don't think there is a single other issue. Because climate change is such a, a widespread, that has such massive impacts in many different areas, I don't think there is another single issue that I could possibly feel like that about. It's mm-hmm. just so important that we get on with it.
1: There's a quote I always go back to from Margaret Atwood, that climate change is everything change. Is there like a, a similar kind of like you know, saying you've got for how, how do you distill that to people who say, you know, look, it's a matter of degree and perspective, right? Because to some people, Black Lives Matter and racial justice is, is more of an immediate, you know, th- real threat to people's lives. How can you justify making climate your priority? It does depend a little bit on people's perspectives, but how do you kind of explain? The, I think we, we both share the belief that climate change is the overarching issue that's a threat multiplier and affects everything else.
0: Yeah, I mean, the reality is it's not that you should not focus on uh, justice issues in the more near term, but I think you need to still really hold front front and centre of your mind that ultimately solving climate change will help with those equality issues. If we don't solve climate change, we're going to have massive increases in the number of refugees we have in the world and refugees tend not to be uh, white middle-aged men.
1: The most enfranchised of people.
0: Exactly. So, I mean, on so many different levels. It's worth uh, getting on with solving it because of the positive knock-on effect you have.
1: If you don't solve climate, all the other existing issues are going to be magnified and far worse, and and, we're potentially risking catastrophe. So when you look ahead to to 2030, what do you think we need to do as a global society? What does society look like to you?
0: I think this is the decade. Uh, There's no doubt about it. If we don't take action uh, uh, in this decade, uh, we are in serious trouble. But I think instead of thinking, what if we don't do anything, uh, what's it going to be like? Uh, We need to throw that away. Actually, let's get on with doing it. And I think this decade is the decade where we both need to build the future and dismantle the present. And by dismantle the present, I really mean the economic dismantling of the companies that are destroying the planet. That has to be an urgent action this decade. And these companies that keep saying that they've got these carbon emissions targets for 2050, bullshit. That's not the time frame. The time frame is 2030. And any company that isn't focused on that does not deserve your dollar. And as consumers, we have enormous power to make this change. We choose the companies that are going to thrive and be successful, which means by default, we also choose the companies that are going to fail. And we need to make sure that we are creating failures out of the companies that are destroying the planet and creating successes out of those that are solving these problems that are actually making the planet thrive. And as consumers, uh, we have enormous power to enact that, and this is the decade we need to do it.
1: It sounds so appealing, and I'm like, yes, absolutely. I want every dollar I spend to be rewarding people I want to reward and actively punishing those that I want to disincentivize and, and hurt Yes, that's hard, right? That does take – well, it's not hard. It takes effort for a consumer to do that. You're you're creating a, an information marketplace and, and a media publication. We'll get into what Amplify by Ample is doing and to, to help consumers do this. But going back to a time before the price tag where every uh, transaction you had was, was by haggling and bartering and transactions were difficult – But you knew the provenance or like you knew what it was you're buying and who you were buying it from. And it was a very much like a direct like you, Trader Joe, (laughs) I'm giving you my money and you are giving me this. And it's a very clear interaction. Whereas now we, you know, I've got friends of mine who are sustainability focused who have got sucked into buying their their Internet service from Belong because they've got some good billboards. And really, they're a Telstra-owned subsidiary and it doesn't coincide with their values at all. To make that into a question, Sarah, do you think it's reasonable in 2020 to expect that consumers have the, the time and energy and they're able to value their dollar in that way?
0: Firstly, um, a lot of stuff in this space uh, uh, focuses on 100% that we have to do all of it. Uh, that's not feasible, that's not feasible for me either. Uh, and if that's what we set ourselves up for, then we'll fail. So at Amplify, everything you do have time to do today, uh, do that. That's going to have a big impact. And It's the same with veganism. There are a whole load of people who don't want to be vegans. Uh, and if all you're doing is forcing them to try to be vegans and making them feel bad about eating meat and all the rest of it, instead of saying, hey, why don't you not eat meat on a Monday? Uh, kind of start with that. Think of this really tasty thing you could eat. Actually, you really enjoy that. That was fun. Like maybe do it on a Wednesday as well. Like there's ways of getting to a point where it's not all hard because the reality is it can't be all hard or we're not going to do this. Uh, and a lot of how information is pushed on people I th- from, from environmental uh, um, organisations I think needs to change and needs to become much more appealing, uh, much more entertaining Again, a lot of what we 're trying to do uh, uh, at Amplify is to to make it more desirable, more entertaining, more real like if if I, who is so passionate about this, can't do it hundred percent, then it's really not possible so let's all just try and do what we can because that's a really amazing starting point so just as an example so I use um, a deodorant that's kind of no packaging at all, so you have to hold it and kind of pop it on. Not an ideal product, but I actually want to do this. I'm prepared for a bit of um, inconvenience. Mm -hmm. Already now, because clearly someone has seen that, mm, not ideal, already now there's a company making a deodorant that is covered in completely compostable material, so actually no longer do I need to do that. I can just hold the normal deodorant stick that everyone else would shove it on. When I'm done, I compost it. Not hard at all. Once you start a few people doing it, you start to create a market for it. Someone makes it easier for you, then more people do it, and more. Do you see what I mean? It just Absolutely. has the snowball effect.
1: Yeah. So, so much of the time, the dynamic is yeah, we get told or or. People ask, so you're expecting me to give something up, you know, forever or like, you know, take a, yeah, a worse experience and say, no, I'm just doing this for now to signal to the market that these are my values and that things will improve from that point. You're, you're, you're moving the window.
0: And one of the examples I always give is when you're drinking a mojito, it tastes better through a metal straw. Like I don't need to be given all the information about plastic straws being bad. I want a better-tasting mojito, and now I've got one. No, pushing those products is a much better way of getting people on board, and we need people to be on board, people who don't have time, people who don't have that much money, people who are perhaps not yet caring about this because they've got more pressing things to care about. We've got to make it really easy, fun, and entertaining to get those people on board.
1: Let's get into how we do that and one of the ways you're doing that through Amplify by Ample. Let's say I, I am an average consumer who does have a concern about climate, but I don't know where to go to, to get information on what to buy. It has some fidelity to it. Where can I go to, to find out about a product that, that I can trust to not just feed me greenwash?
0: The way we're approaching this, because we're trying to change the narrative and kind of change the conversation, is to start with in really beautiful, humorous, Uh, engaging ways. We're covering companies and products that are doing really positive things. We only cover companies and individuals who are doing positive things. So immediately you get a a source of information uh, that's appealing. We do not do kind of lists of where to buy what or anything like that. I think uh, it becomes quite challenging to make sure that's comprehensive enough, that you're not missing out on brands and and so forth. So a lot of what we're trying to do is that initial inspiration to think this is uh, a great
1: thing to do. Inspiration rather than an inventory.
0: Exactly. Exactly right. And then start talking about what actually uh, is important for companies to do. So we're about to do uh, a piece on renewables and it's been interesting, last week Google came out with an announcement that they're going to go to um, 100% use of renewables which is different to buying renewable credits to make sure that your energy use is, as you purchase it is 100% because that doesn't stop you using fossil fuel. Uh, Because, for example, in the middle of the night here in New South Wales, where I am, uh, it's coal-fired generation in the grid mix. So I know I'm using coal if I do things uh, at night time. Uh, And so Google is now going to ensure that they're actually not using fossil fuel, which is all about being flexible with your demand, uh, as well as uh, using batteries and changing consumption in that way. So that's one of the, the tenets of what you should be looking for in a company, a company that's genuinely trying to get rid of any fossil fuel in its energy use, and kind of so on and so forth. So over the next few months, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, things to look out for. Really focus on how to make this easy for you.
1: That's the type of article I'm really excited to take to, to my employers, um, things that actually speak the language of a business owner. and is isn't just a, you should do this because it's, It's right or good or, you know, the social aspects, but actually, like, hey, here's a business trend that you're at risk of missing out on and actually fundamentally losing out as a business.
0: Yeah, and no, completely. And Google is doing what they're doing with those ideas in mind. We're going to do this for the environment because our customers are beginning to expect it of us, and if we want to keep them as customers, we need to up our game. And those, the companies that are thinking like that already, are the ones that are going to thrive. Because as customers, we will punish you if you don't.
1: Let's talk a little bit about demand response and what you do around Ample. This will not be like a full-on deep look at Ample. Although I'd love to have you on with one of the other things I do. I, I do a podcast for uh, for ERA, which is the Australian Institute of air conditioning, refrigeration, and heating, and demand response and built environment stuff. I I wear that hat occasionally where I, I geek out about built environment, even though I'm not an engineer, and I've <laughs> learned it all from the outside as a podcaster. How do you explain demand response? And, and then I'm gonna follow up around what 2020 and the shift to work from home might mean for this space.
0: So just before I answer this question, uh, unfortunately, as a result of COVID-19, we've had to hibernate our tech for 12 months. So we were having an incredibly successful operation with the Intercontinental Hotel Group here in Sydney, uh, without being able to get more and more customers because hospitality uh, has had such a big impact.
1: The industry's in hibernation, unfortunately.
0: The real challenge is there are so many businesses now who are quite rightly uh, uh, just trying to survive. And so doing anything additional in this space is quite hard and that's the reason why at the moment we're really focused on uh, uh, building Amplify as the marketing engine, the engine that really celebrates the companies that are doing positive things and all of this has come out of um, a previous business failure. I was running a company called Tempest Energy uh, which was based in the UK but also had an operation here in Australia uh, and had some fantastic customers. For example uh, the Adelaide Oval used to change when they would consume uh, electricity in order to use more renewables and really clean up their energy usage. Um, that company was a fairly aggressive company and in 2014 uh, we legally challenged a fossil fuel subsidy scheme in the European Court. We, that was a UK based a subsidy scheme that needed European approval uh, for composition law reasons and the scheme was designed in a completely anti-competitive way to favour fossil fuel in 2018 we won our case these cases take a long time in the European Court so we stopped the £5.6 billion fossil fuel subsidy scheme um, we then the following year tried to enforce that judgement in the UK High Court and while we were doing that the UK government and the European Commission colluded to unlawfully reintroduce the scheme in a manner that bankrupted our company because we lost the High Court uh, legal challenge. And so the UK government basically combined with the fossil fuel industry bankrupted our company. Out of that experience is really what the whole conscious consumerism push has come. Mm. uh, Because if it's possible to win a legal case and still have governments and pan-national governments unlawfully reintroduce fossil fuel subsidy schemes, then clearly changing regulation is not going to happen fast enough and I I spent almost five years fighting that. So I think the the opportunity for consumers to make immediate choices uh, is much more real and I think for this decade that's what we need to focus on uh, because as soon as consumers say no and switch their choices, the companies not doing the right thing have no choice. Either they go under or they change. Mm. And consumers are incredibly powerful in forcing that change, I think.
1: There is so much there, Sarah, I'd love to talk about. I'd love to just quickly, because of course it's a hugely hot topic here in Australia, the the topic of fossil fuel subsidies. And and as we speak, we're just a few days out since the gas power recovery announcement and the amount of money our government spends of taxpayer funds on the fossil fuel industry. And it can seem really intangible and it can be hard to grasp. So with you having, you know, and I'm I'm sorry for how your company was destroyed by this, but this ringside seat to actually what fossil fuel subsidies look like in a tangible way, was this a, a tender process for, you know, boosting the grid like, Like, how do you explain what that government policy was to a a layperson?
0: It's called a capacity market, but basically its intent is to ensure that we have security of supply, that we have enough power. So the scheme in the UK basically subsidized the whole market which is economically insane anyway. The reality is as you reach the, the high demand periods where you're kind of almost getting to critical peak, you can either fire up more power stations or you can reduce demand. So what we wanted was a, an open competitive process so that customers could price themselves and say, no, actually, it's going to be cheaper for me to turn down. Let me have the opportunity to bid in and price myself Because actually, that would be cheaper than paying for the fossil fuel companies. And the fact that it would be cheaper was obviously what motivated them to to fight us and lobby so much. Because the reality is, renewables and flexible electricity customers out-compete fossil fuels. It's cheaper. And when you've won that battle, it's done. Because who the hell is going to pay for more expensive fossil fuels?
1: Or it should be done, but there's not a lobby for demand response and there's not a, a lobby for avoiding power use in the first place, right? You know like the, the cheapest power is the power you never have to produce in the first place. Therefore there's no money to spend promoting that agenda.
0: No, exactly. But that has to do with the imbalance in in, in where the money sits. And that's very much my own learning and, and my own uh, conclusion. The reason I am so intent on the economic dismantling of the companies that are destroying the planet is because while they're rich, while they have revenues, they can spend money lobbying. When they have no money, they cannot lobby, they can't fund political campaigns, and they have no power.
1: Because the economics aren't on their side, so they don't don't have literally anything in their court.
0: I mean, climate change presents as an economic problem. We have to focus on the economics. Of course, it's environmental but its solution is economic. We've got to make it not economically viable to pollute, and I haven't won yet. I am not in any way diminished in the, uh, the determination, passion and will to keep going on this. Uh, and there are lots of different ways of, uh, of attacking this, but ultimately it's the economic dismantling that needs to happen. Some of this is in the narratives. Uh, when we think about climate change resolution, unfortunately, the narrative is still around either we've got to do this or we're fucked, which is not a particularly happy story to get uh, on board with, or it's all kind of these really lovely, uh, fluffy environmentalists who are so altruistic that they do that. Uh, a, lot of us, a lot of people don't recognise themselves in that. Human beings are much more complex. Sometimes we do the right things, sometimes we don't. Um, Getting more narratives out there, showing real people excited about this challenge, because it's fun, because it's actually really, really interesting. You can build really rewarding careers around doing this. This is the most exciting career a teenager, 20-something, could be getting into now. There isn't anything more exciting than this. Creating more desirable narratives around that, I think, is incredibly important
1: and personalizing what those kind of career opportunities can look like making it tangible for people and, and making it yeah showing how appealing it is through practical stories is is incredible like the profiles i read on amplify really do inspire me and i i'm i'm chuffed to be you know have a, a, my own profile up there soon you know feeling like i do not belong in that pantheon but it's um <laughs> It's amazing that it's It's 2020 and sustainability does feel, yes, not a niche thing, not a, a fringe thing. It does feel like the fashionable thing. It feels like the thing people are aspiring to be. Would you say that was the case a few years ago? And if, if so, what sort of what's changed in the last couple of years and how big a force do you think that is that it's now desirable to be one of the people who care about the climate? It doesn't mean you're a, an angry, disagreeable fringe dweller.
0: I think we are still very much in the infancy of that change.
1: We can't take that for granted yet.
0: Yeah, I mean, when every show on Netflix has a Harvey Specter type character from Suits working as a climate professional, then I think we'll be there. And that's really what I mean by the narrative, that like this is kind of the investment banking of the 80s career, making it incredibly desirable. These are the guys who get laid. Do you want to get laid? This is the work you do, kind of thing. Yes. And I think that bit was still very much uh, in the infancy, but definitely you have more and more celebrities who are speaking out about this, more and more brands that are producing incredibly beautiful things to wear that have been produced without harm to the environment. So all of that is incredibly uh, positive. Mm. I think there's not yet enough of everything being mainstream, So when you think of companies like uh, IKEA, uh, they don't have a sustainable range. They make everything as sustainable as possible while making as cheaply as possible. Um, Whereas there are still many companies out there that do a sustainable range. Mm -hmm. When we're really getting there, then it will be ubiquitous. And Coles, every product in Coles will be sustainable. And that's the leap that we need to make as quickly as possible.
1: So, how do you respond then to people who say, "Well, the only way we're going to solve this is first, if you know, step one, replace capitalism"? Like, <laughs> of course, that being a a huge monumental undertaking. That you know, we we fought cold wars over this. If we fought real wars over this, this is this is not going to be done on the streets on weekends. Um, of course, your your background from. Uh, Working in finance, you've seen firsthand the power of capitalism, the power of markets. And and do you you think fundamentally that, like, we can get to a a sustainable, livable in perpetuity world by harnessing capitalism rather than having to replace it?
0: I think at the moment uh, we don't have a choice. Um, Fighting climate change is already an enormous battle if alongside that we also have to fight capitalism, then I think we're doomed because we're splitting our resources. I think what we need to do is creatively think about how we can make capitalism work for us. And that really is what I've kind of spent my whole uh, career doing. Um, A lot of the demand flexibility argument, uh, uh, when we came to that, we came to it through price risk because the reality is in real markets, renewables are much cheaper. So when there's a lot of renewable power in the grid mix the price falls. When the grid mix is predominantly fossil fuel the price goes sky high. So actually as an electricity user if you're moving your consumption from the dirty periods to the clean periods you're saving money. So there's a perfect example of a, uh, a market, a capitalist market working for climate resolution. Uh, and the more we unlock the ability for that to happen, the better. And this is why subsidies in any energy market are so bad, because everything that sits outside the market changes that price dynamic. So, and again, this is why I was fighting uh, the capacity market so much, because it was a, a market outside the electricity market. But you can do this in a way that makes capitalism work for you. Again, IKEA... Uh, When they take out resources in order to save the environment, they actually make their furniture cheaper because it's cheaper to produce. You're actually creating less waste and therefore it's a cheaper product. Again, making economics work for you. I personally think that's the only way of doing this right now, given how little time we have to make big changes. A lot of environmentalists are very, very lovely people. Uh, and I think some of the work that needs to be done to dismantle the uh, companies that are destroying the planet is hard, nasty uh, and will be ugly. And so really trying to show that it's actually okay to do some ugly things in order to achieve what you need to achieve. And trying to get more environmentalists on board with that I think is incredibly important. And we need to think as creatively as possible about how we actually uh, get to that end game.
1: It's really refreshing to hear, Sarah, and I've definitely seen from my few years here in Melbourne of sort of observing the activist community here in in a city kind of famous globally for activism and you know street protest. I have seen the evolution of tactics, especially uh, through the Stop Adani campaign, going from, yes, street protests and letter-writing campaigns, visits to MPs' offices, through to proxy votes at AGMs, high pressure campaigns focused on contractors. Right now there's a huge campaign against insurers. This evolution of tactics in encouraging to you that you see like, okay, there is some some movement happening. Do you see some like encouraging things going on?
0: Oh, definitely. And uh, really in, in some markets, like for example, uh, in the UK where Extinction Rebellion, uh, has been very active uh, and has got mainstream support for its actions. That has had quite a positive impact on uh, Greenpeace I think, uh, who have become more active uh, and perhaps more like they used to be in the 80s. And I think that's a very encouraging uh, sign because climate NGOs who are funded by philanthropists have a challenge because, of course, when a rich person gives money, they want their donation uh, to make them look good. And that can really hamstring uh, uh, what an environment, environmental organisation can actually do. Uh, so there are, there are challenges there. The kind of the corporatisation of climate NGOs is a negative thing. Uh, they need to have the freedom to do what's actually necessary. And I think it needs to get a lot uglier uh, if we're going to have real impacts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look out for an episode, you know, of Climactic, coming in the near future, where we have on experts like Sarah to say, hey, we've got this little, this vessel here that wants to be a kayak out there fighting in the surf, and and yet, saying things how they are, how do we kind of keep ourselves afloat while not being afraid to, to smack some heads with oars occasionally, when when and as needed. You said before, you know, this is a multi-front battle, and and it's great you can talk about the The battle that was lost against the UK government, and I mean there's no shame in that what a huge David and Goliath fight, and the dynamics of that sound very frustrating because here in Australia we can kind of look to the EU as kind of an example of, oh, here's someone who's doing it right.
0: There's a a woman who runs the department basically being responsible for the unlawful reintroduction of the scheme. She's the same person who allowed Poland a similar scheme, Poland is using that subsidy to build 5 gigawatts of coal-fired power stations, new coal-fired power stations. Uh, so, in, in all her media work, she presents herself in a very, very different way. And you need significant funds to really show what's going on. I mean, I, I did try. I, uh, I got her to fund the 3D printing of her head, which we, print, which we painted black. Uh, and tried to launch this campaign, that she's the face of coal for Europe. Regular media outlets wouldn't pick it up. A lot of the politicians in Brussels are incredibly dull. She's one of the ones who's not so dull. And I actually had journalists saying to me, listen Sarah, if we print this, she'll never speak to us. She's the only interesting one here, like we can't do it. It's appalling, but that was the the experience. But actually what I'm doing now is I'm writing uh, a weekly column for Amplify, basically describing uh, uh, the whole story of that legal challenge. But if I wrote it as a technical piece or an economic piece, no one would read it. So instead, I've started writing Sex and the City Meets Climate Change, weaving in all sorts of different things to make this a compelling tale. I'm hoping that that's going to get a much bigger audience and, and kind of expose this more than uh, a different approach might.
1: It's absolutely wonderful. I recommend to all listeners to go read the the Climate Clooney weekly articles. They're amazing. I'll be talking about doing an audio drama adaptation of that at some point for sure. So on Greenwash in particular, and sort of back to it being a multi-front battle, like it with with ample and demand response. You are fighting against market regulation. Like, each one of these fronts has, you know, the good side and then the the incumbent forces that are battling against it. And that always takes different forms. But the dynamic is the same. Like, pick your industry. The same underlying things are happening. It's just called different names and has different faces. So, demand response. You got market regulations that are artificially and incorrectly propping up the fossil fuel market. It's not being treated as an open market, and natural economics aren't at play. Activism, you're fighting against the media a lot of the time because the point of activism is to get attention, and kind of the job of the media is to put attention where it wants. And then with Amplify by Ample, the space you're playing in is conscious consumerism, and am I right in saying the countervailing force to that is greenwash? It's not denial, it's co-option. It's you've got incumbents trying to say, ah, yes, Yes, that is obviously where we should go, be going. Here's how we are, but they're not. Is, is that accurate?
0: There's a lot of information out there about what organizations are doing that I think uh, is not credible. Uh, so, for example, BP, the UK oil company, they've had a new CEO and he's now trying to change the company uh, in the time frame of 2050. The media has made some very positive statements about what he's doing. But that, what uh, that actually means is, for the next 30 years, he wants his company to be profiting from selling oil and gas, which we know is destroying the planet. So, what is positive about that?
1: Absolutely. So I, I, This always bugs me. I always like to flip it around to people that now we have... You know, conservative politicians or people on the other side who've been opposed to climate change action now for decades and them making a pledge like, well, oh, we should stop by twenty fifty and I say, Why? Tell me why we need change at all. And if you make the argument back to me, can't you then see that your timeline is like you're changing for a reason, but that reason says that your timeline is completely out of keeping with reality? The
0: reality is all of those companies, their share price depends on the value of their reserves. The reserves that we really have to accept cannot be burnt, therefore cannot be extracted, therefore are worthless. The correction in their share prices, there has to be a way of orchestrating that correction. Pension funds need to get out of these stocks. Ordinary people who are investing need to get out so they don't lose money. That correction, it might not happen next year or the year after, but that correction is going to happen because their share prices are mispriced because we are not going to be extracting that oil and gas. Seven and a half billion people are not going to allow the planet that they depend on to be fucked up. We are simply not going to allow it. It's not credible. Really, making that happen in the right time frame is the challenge. Of course, we're going to solve this. Let's bloody well get on with solving it in a time frame that means we can all enjoy our lives.
1: So the reality is, a lot of people are walking around their retirements with their superannuations tied up in zombie companies that are literally getting hollowed out and a stiff wind is going to blow them over. Let's hope that's not catastrophically, but it definitely needs to happen, so... For people who are walking around and they haven't divested their superannuation yet, and they're not investing in industries that are only going to increase from here, rather than they don't know if it's currently at the height, but it's definitely close. Like, have we all stopped talking about peak oil? No, because supply has gone up, but we can't afford to burn anymore. Your role in this is is as a storyteller and explaining this to people. What's a more powerful story to tell, like, that... BP knows that climate change action has to happen and they're lying to you about what they're doing right now, or that BP is actually a walking shell of a company and it's essentially a giant Ponzi scheme. And it's like, it's more like, do we tell people that, you know, there's marketing that's lying to you? Which people might be immune to because we all kind of know that marketing has been to some extent lies for decades.
0: So for me, the most important immediate goal is to redress this time frame because if companies and many of the organizations that are trying to put pressure on companies from shareholders or from big investors still say 2050, that is complete utter bullshit, the time frame is 2030, change has to happen before 2030. Making that message loud and clear so that every time someone says 2050, someone calls out the bullshit, it's not 2050, we don't have that time. If we only have nine years, uh, then what you've put on your balance sheet, the value you put on your gas and oil, it's wrong. If it's a nine-year period, we can see it's wrong. And getting that loud and clear, the time frame is 2030 in everything that we communicate. So in the renewables piece that I'm writing, we're, we're talking a bit about Google. And what I really like about what Google is doing is they are saying the time frame is 2030, because it is
1: how do you as a person keep up that intensity because it's amazing the size of the change that we need to see happen in nine years and i'll go back to what we were saying at the start where it's it's okay that you can't make a perfect buying decision right now it's okay that you know for for those of us who are in melbourne and i know a lot of people listening to this will be like for those of us who We're only shopping online, and we don't need a lot of stuff at the moment anyway, but when we have that buying decision option, a decision we make today isn't commensurate with the change we need within nine years, but it can be better than the default choice. How how do you keep yourself walking up that staircase every day for the next nine years?
0: I think we shouldn't underestimate uh, the power of a trend. So even though you think that just by making a switch say from uh, a packet of oats that's packaged only in cardboard to the one that's packaged in a plastic uh, in a plastic bag by making that switch you think it's a small job uh, uh, that you no know, that it's going to have no impact but multiple people making that switch actually is then spotted as a trend then and the you know, big companies do a lot of analytics around what the trend is, we kind of have to trust in that domino effect. It's a little bit like raising children. Each day you try to do really positive things and you're not going to see the results for like maybe 15, 20 years down, down the line. You just have to trust that you're doing the positive thing and keep doing it. But in terms of me personally, I am so massively vested in this. I have lived with zero financial security for the last eight years because there's no point if we're not solving climate change. I've raised three children with zero financial security because this is so important. And when you're really passionate about wanting to do something, you do end up backing yourself to keep going. And, of course, failing and going bankrupt was an awful thing to happen, but it has not in any way diminished my determination, probably, to be honest, the opposite. And I am going to keep thinking of different ways of approaching this until we're done, because we are going to be done one day, because there's no way 7.5 billion of us are not going to do this. We are.
1: Well, thank you, Sarah. You go well. Enjoy uh, life out of lockdown in Sydney. Hope that that keeps up.
0: And I hope things improve for you very soon.
1: Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times.